Man, we are living in a time in America today that I, I didn't think I'd ever see. Manhood is under attack. Recent comment by former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright said, there's a special place in hell for women who don't support other women. And she was talking about women voting for Hillary. And, uh, and I thought, you know, that really illustrates the great gap there is between a lot of the women in our country and a lot of the men. And, um, you know, everything about that statement says that uh, they have an us-against-them attitude toward us guys. But in some cases, who can blame them? Because these women were created by their husbands. Most of Americans' women have not had the opportunity to be close to a real man, certainly not an ideal man. And you rarely see the ideal man portrayed in the movies. You don't see him on TV. You don't see him often on the sports field. Some of the greatest icons of masculinity have failed us greatly. One of the saddest things to me to see is this erosion of the image of Bill Cosby, who for years stood as, a, as the role model for a, a, a man, what a man should be, what a dad should be. And it breaks my heart to see that it was false, that it was phony, that it wasn't real, that it wasn't genuine. So what is real manhood? Who is the ideal man? Is it the kick-butt movie star who does what we would all like to do is uh, kick the bad guys. I, you know, I'm saved, but I still, when the bad, the get, bad guy's getting his butt kicked, I'm still, yeah, yeah, hit him there, yeah, 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 that's it. And, uh, you know, uh, I guess i got to be sanctified. How about the lovable buffoon of the sitcom whose uh, anchor wife pulls him uh, back to center over and over again? That seems to be the theme nowadays, doesn't it? When I was a kid, the dad was the anchor of the home, and he was the one that was... Uh, keeping everybody on the straight and narrow. And nowadays, it's the mom, and the dad's a complete idiot. If it wasn't for the mom, uh, he wouldn't be anything. Or the dashing and debonair bachelor who never commits to the girls who love him. Or even the religious stuff shirt who never laughs and looks down his nose at the godless scum around him. Uh, What is a man? Because we get all kinds of different images thrown at us. Edwin Lewis Cole said this, and I think it, it, it can't be improved on. Manhood and Christ-likeness are synonymous. You see, the ideal man is presented to the world in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, It's not just because he's perfect. It's not just because he's the Son of God that he's ideal. But he models four essential elements. That's why there are four Gospels, because each one of these Gospel writers chose to focus. Actually, I don't even think they chose it. I think God ordained it, and they just did what God led them to do. And each of them gave a particular focus in their gospel to show us one element of what Jesus was like. You know, I love football, and one of the things I love about our football is that kids don't just come to football practice to go to football practice to get better at football. You never hear kids say, I've got to get better at football. What makes our kids so good is they get better at specific things. I loved watching years ago Dennis Bird coach our young men uh, to, to, to shuck a, an offensive lineman. I, I watched him teach those guys how to get past a block and all the different moves that he used and little things that he told them. Like when he first got in the NFL, some of the old veteran New York Jets had learned how to take foam and thumbtacks and glue them on the insides of their shoulder pads. And when you would rub your hands over the jersey, you could not feel those thumbtacks. The only way they could be felt is if an offensive lineman pushed like that really hard into the pads of that defensive player. 
and he would come out with bloody hands and he would complain to the ref and the ref would come over, say, come here, let me see your pads. And he'd rub his hands on them, couldn't feel anything because the thumbtacks were safely hidden beneath that foam. You couldn't feel them unless you hit them really hard. Dennis said they told him that if you don't cheat, you don't want to win bad enough. But we never quite let him put that in with our kids in high school, but... It was fun for me to watch these kids get trained in specific things. That's really what makes you better at football. It's not that you just say, I want to get better at football, but I want, I want to, if I'm a lineman, I, I want to come off the ground. I want to come out of my stance. I want to take the right first step. I, I, I've watched Darren coach the linebackers, and the first step that they take when a play uh, is initiated it is essential. It, it's amazing to me how he gets those kids in position. They don't always make the tackle, but it amazes me that they're where they're supposed to be. It is. It's, uh, it's uh, amazing. But it took the perspective of four completely different evangelists with different personalities, and even in slightly different times, to tell his story completely. And we see these same four elements in a uh, symbolic form even before Jesus was born. Hundreds of years, about 700 years, in fact, before Christ. Uh, in fact, uh, this whatever took place in heaven in the eternal past, these beings existed. They went way back. They're created, no doubt, but they've been created for thousands of years, probably before the foundation of the world. And here's what Ezekiel said He said, I looked and there was a whirlwind. Coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing back and forth in a brilliant light all around it. In the center of the fire, there was a gleam like amber. The form of four living creatures came from it, and this was their appearance. They had human form, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight. The soles of their feet were like the hooves of a calf, sparkling like the gleam of polished bronze. They had human hands under their wings. On their four sides, all four of them had faces and wings. Their wings were touching. The creatures did not turn as they moved. Each one went straight ahead. The form of each of their faces was that of a man, and each of the four had the face of a lion on the right, the face of an ox on the left, and this means the face of the eagle had to be in the back. I do not have this before you this morning. I wish you could see it. But each one of these faces represents something, and it is associated with one of the Gospels, which these Gospels each have different themes, and each one of these themes communicates an element. And here's what we would say. The face of the man is indicative of the humanness of Christ. And we see that in the Gospel of Luke, he is considered to be Jehovah's man. That's the theme of the gospel of Luke. The manhood of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus is demonstrated over and over again. It's emphasized in the gospel of Luke. And the element that that communicates to us is this. Jesus is the communicator. The word became flesh. And that's the whole reason God became a man is so he could connect with us and communicate with us and to make himself known to us. And so that's the first element of what it means to be an ideal man, to be a communicator. Secondly, we come to the Gospel of Matthew. And the second face that's mentioned in Ezekiel is the face of the lion. And when we come to the Gospel of Matthew, we see that Jesus is presented as the king of Israel. 
We read his genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew, the first chapter, when we read about where Joseph comes from, and we see how that he was meant to be the king of Israel. He would have been the rightful king of Israel. Now, because of sin, the sin of Jeconiah, the prophet Jeremiah spoke and said, none of your descendants or none of your seed will ever again sit on the throne. That would then keep any one of the sons of David, if they were biologically connected to him through that bloodline, that would keep them from sitting on the throne. Joseph was biologically connected to David. He couldn't sit on the throne because of the prophecy of Jeremiah. But because Jesus was not his biological son, but because he was the firstborn and he was the heir of Joseph, Jesus was then qualified to be the king of Israel. And it's interesting to me that when he's on the cross, that it's obvious that Joseph is dead by the instructions that Jesus gives to John to tell John to take care of his mother. So because Joseph was dead, now Jesus is the legal king of Israel. But you see this being demonstrated all through the gospel of Matthew. What then does it mean to be a king? What's the essential element? Well, kings are rulers. Yeah, but that's not really their function. Kings are protectors. And the ideal man is a protector. Thirdly, we see that the face, the third face was the face of the ox. And this is demonstrated all through the gospel of Mark where Jesus is called Jehovah's servant. He's presented as the servant of God. And this element that we see is the ideal man is a one who serves, not just commands, but he's able to command because he serves. And finally, the face of the eagle is revealed in the Gospel of John, whose theme is that he is the Word made flesh. He is the Son of God, the overcomer, the one who rose from the dead. That's the theme of that Gospel. So first of all, I want you to see that the ideal man is a communicator. James, who's a half-brother of Jesus, writes about this in James 1.19 and says, My dearly beloved brothers, understand this. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. The first role of a communicator is not to speak. The first role of a communicator is to listen. You have to be observant. In other words, you don't start by talking. You start by listening. You start by observing. And that's your first call. In fact, uh, here we see this in the Gospel of Luke, the ideal man, the communicator. Here's Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. After three days, they found him in the temple. He was sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. He is the Son of God, but he isn't the first one talking. He's listening to them. You see, the biggest complaint that every wife has is that her husband doesn't listen. I've learned that if she's talking, even if you do engage in conversation for a good long while, do not change the subject before she is through. I don't care how important what you're thinking is. Changing the subject is the same as committing suicide. The man who's slow to speak is not a man who won't talk, but rather he's a man who learns to talk accurately. He's had time to observe his audience, and he knows what needs to be said. Proverbs 15.23 says this, A man finds joy in giving an apt reply, and how good is a timely word. 
You see, that's what happens when we listen, when we're sensitive, when, we're, when we listen and we pay attention, we learn what to say at the right time. That, that's what we're called to be. That's, that's one of the great marks of Christ. He was an amazing communicator. He had an ability to read people because he was an observer. He was a listener. When you begin to do that, and especially if you do it under the power of the Holy Spirit, God will even permit you to hear things and to know things so that you can help other people. I, one of our employees was in the hospital this week or, or about to go. I didn't know it. But I was about to make a phone call to another person, and just it, quietly in my spirit, I felt impressed. No, don't call that man. Call this man. And as I called him, I could tell by the tone of his voice something wasn't right, that he was weak. I could hear in his voice that he sounded like something wasn't there. He wasn't crying, but he was weakened. And I, I said, what's going on? And found out that he was battling a disease. They did hospitalize him. He's going to be fine. But what I want you to see is that it, it, it's amazing how the Holy Spirit can speak to us and guide us, even concerning our children, concerning our friends, concerning our spouse. We have to learn to be good communicators. And the f- man who faithfully communicates words that are in season, actually learns to give himself back gifts. Listen to what Ephesians says, chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives. How are we going to do that? Practice football. What what are we going to work on? If I'm a receiver, I'm going to work on my routes, my cuts, catching the ball. What am I going to work on specifically? Husbands, love your wives. Let's, Let's listen. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He's saying that the way that Jesus cleans the church is that he communicates with it. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor. He gave himself a present that he might present it to himself, King James says, in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless in the same way husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. How then do I love my wife? I communicate with her. And I communicate words to her that lift her up. She needs that. That cleanses her. There are times that my wife is troubled by something that has happened or some bill that we've got some confusion over. It used to be we didn't have the money. Today we've got the money. It's just that sometimes somebody steals our credit card or something happens like that. It's crazy today with the Internet stuff and how much thievery there is. But when I am able to sit and talk with her, it's okay. It's okay. It's going to be fine. And it's amazing how settling everything is when I begin to talk. And here's what I want you to see. I can't do that in my own strength. I have to lean on Christ. Too many men are trying to draw that kind of strength from their wives, and you're making a huge mistake. You can't draw your strength from the people you're supposed to lead. If you're going to lead people, you've got to draw your strength from another source. I had a pastor friend who would fall apart in front of his congregation all the time. He was always asking them for prayer, and it's no wonder that his church disintegrated very slowly and hundreds of people left. He had a great thing going at one time. He inherited a great church from his father-in-law, but he blew it because he continually fell down in front of the people. 
And as much as people may sympathize with you when you're hurting, and as much as they want to pray for you when you're going through something, if you fall apart in front of people all the time, you'll never be able to lead those people. You've got to learn to draw your strength from Christ. Nothing wrong with having prayer buddies. Nothing wrong with listening to people. Nothing wrong with having mentors. But when it comes to you leading, you cannot lean on the people you're going to be leading. You've got to be the pillar of strength for them. Your wife needs to see you in that time of strength. You've got to draw strength from him. You can't spend time with him and come away needy. If you spend time with him, you'll, you'll be strong. And she needs you to be this way. Your kids need you to be this way. Your church needs you to be this way. The ideal man's a communicator. Second thing is the ideal man is a protector. Hurting people gravitate to shelter. The movie that won the Academy Award just the other night's movie called Spotlight. I don't know if you saw it or not, but it's a movie about the sex abuse that took place in the Catholic Church and how it was covered up and how there were certain priests who molested 70, 80 boys. And, and instead of being removed from the priesthood or instead of being thrown in jail, uh, they were shuffled off to another parish where they continued to molest. And this cover-up went all the way up to the knowledge of it went to at least the Vatican. That's awful. That's totally cross-grained to the character and the heart of Christ. And what we see when we come to the gospel of Matthew is Jesus as Jehovah's king is a protector. He's a cleanser. He's not just here to dish out orders, but this is what we love about him. Look at this, Matthew 21. Jesus went into the temple complex, and he drove out all those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it's written, my house will be called a house of prayer. You're making it a den of thieves. These people were making unbelievable profits, taking advantage of the pilgrims who were coming from afar to worship. And they were charging exorbitant prices for sacrificial animals or for the temple coins that you had to use to pay the taxes they would in the exchange they would jack up the rates and take advantage of you because they knew they had an advantage over you there and they were taking advantage of their own countrymen it wasn't that the the temple wasn't to be supported it was that these guys were had found an angle to make money and they brought this business into the very place where it should never have been and one of the things we see in Matthew is that Jesus is a king. And over and over again, we see him protecting people. He's straightening out things. He's doing what a king would do. And this is one of Israel's ongoing sins is the leaders, sometimes even the best of them, sometimes even guys like King David did this. Warrior that he was, hero that he was. This is one of those areas where he fell woefully short because he didn't always protect he saw another man's wife. He wanted her. He went after the woman. He had sex with her. He got her pregnant in order to cover up his sin. He brings her husband home, tries to get the husband to sleep with his wife so that he'll think that this is his baby. It doesn't work. The husband is such an honorable man because all of his fellow soldiers are in the field. He won't sleep in the house, and he won't go to bed with his wife. So the next night, David gets the guy drunk and sends him back home. He won't leave. He won't go home to be with his wife. He's such an honorable man. He will not, even when he was drunk, he wouldn't go into his wife. And so David sent orders by the man's own hand. He's carrying his own death warrant in his hand when he goes back to his commander. He's such an honorable and noble guy that he doesn't dare open the orders that tell the commander to have this man killed in battle. 
The man gets killed in battle, and when David hears about it, he takes the man's wife to be his own after the mourning period is over. And this brought a curse on David and on his family because the same things were done to him. You see, we've been called to be protectors. And when you realize that, that it's your job, your, your place as a husband, you think twice about temptation. Because what you and I do privately comes out openly in our kids. And that's why it's important that we learn to resist temptation and quit making excuses for it. Shut the door on it. Temptation doesn't last forever. You know, there's just a ma- we're talking about a matter of a few seconds to a f- couple of minutes at the most. What happens is guys give in way too quick. If you learn to call on God the minute that temptation strikes, and call on God even when you don't want to. That's one of the most surprising things to me about getting out of temptation. I really kind of like this, but I'm going to call on God anyway. And I'm really feeling like doing this, but I'm going to call on God anyway. God, help me. I don't want to do this. I don't need to do this. I'm not going to do this. Even though it has an appeal to me, I'm not giving in here. And God helps me. He'll help you the same way. Nothing turns people from God more quickly than the refusal of a leader to be a protector. It's our first responsibility. So the ideal man is not just a communicator, but he's also a protector. Man, I'm, I'm telling you what, as a kid, it's a, it's a scary thing to grow up in a house where you know it's open over your head. Just it, It'd be like living in a place where you had walls, but you got no roof. My mother brought all kinds of junk into our home, brought all kinds of men into our home, brought all kinds of, of, of crazy, trashy people into our home. My mother opened up our home in a way that my brother and I were exposed to things we should never have seen, never have been a part of, never been around. But this is what we grew up with. We were never protected, and there was no one to go to to say anything to. My mother would make accusations. My mother would turn on me. My mother sent me to call the cops one night to get a man out of her living room that she invited in for drinks. And when he was gone, she told me to slip out of the house and go call the cops. Went to the neighbor's house, called the cops. They came back when the man came in. They came in and arrested him and carried him off. He was puzzled by the whole thing. He thought he'd been invited in the home, as indeed he had been. And he kept saying, why did you call the cops? You let me in. And she turned and pointed at me as I was standing off in the hallway. Him! He did it! And after the cops left and carried the man away, she came in and began to beat on me for calling the cops the very thing she told me to do when the guy was in drinking. That's funny things to your head when you're taught that you've got to honor a lady like that. When your Christian grandparents or churchgoers will come and tell you, your mom has some stress problems, it's your daddy's fault, your daddy made her do all this stuff, she's really a wonderful woman, she doesn't mean to be this way, but they made excuses for her the whole time. And I'm going to tell you something, there are way too many people that make excuses. Way too many churches and pastors make excuses for their employees, and they cover their own butts instead of protecting the victims. And Jesus was the man who protected the victim and protected the innocent. 
And there's something that cries out in us for that, and that's the reason that Spotlight won the Academy Award. It's because everybody knows inside that if you're going to be a ruler, you ought to be a king, you ought to be a protector. And that churches have responsibilities to deal with things that their people do. That's what Jesus was. He was an ideal man. The ideal man is a servant. Mark's gospel shows this. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked his disciples, what were you guys arguing about on the way here? But they were silent because on the way, they'd been arguing with one another about who was going to be the greatest. So sitting down, he called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a child, and he had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one such little child as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but he really welcomes him who sent me. You know, every man has an ego. Gosh, I've got an ego. I know I do. You've got an ego. We all do. And we all want to be respected among our peers by other men. And some guys have learned just by sheer force of personality how to step right over men and stand on their backs and just move to the top. You know guys like that. They're in every field of business, and they're at all different levels. They're in mid-level, upper level, all the way to the top. We've got men like that running for president right now. Just by sheer force of personality can bully their way to the top. And it works for a while. But they're not men that are really admired. They're not men that are really, really respected. Their money's respected. The Bible says the rich man has many friends. But they're not the kind of man that we would really like to be. And Christ didn't tell us it was wrong to want to go to the top. He just said when you do go to the top, it's important that you go there the right way. And you go to the top by going to the bottom. He's saying that in the kingdom of God, we rise by serving others. And what I want you to see is that serving others doesn't lead you to being stepped on the rest of your life. Serving others leads you to a place of prominence. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, the Apostle Paul said, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. He said, I gain when I serve. You gain when you serve. And the face of the ox represents this because the ox is the animal that never gets to make a choice. He's not like the lion. The lion decides what he's going to do when he gets up in the morning, where he's going to go. There's no leash on him. He's the king of the jungle. He's roaming wherever he wants to go. And the eagle, there's no leash on him. He's flying where he wants to go. And the man, he, of course, is free. But the ox is the only one of the gang who doesn't get to make any of his decisions. He's been tamed and domesticated. He's got a ring in his nose or he's got a, a, a pen that he stays in or there's a pasture he's confined to. And his whole life is spent in the service of other people. When he's being fed, don't think they love you. They're just feeding you because they love you. They're fattening you up, buddy, because they're going to make things out of your hide and they're going to eat your steaks. You are completely serving other people. But that's what the Messiah came to be. He came to be a servant, to completely yield himself to the point of death. So the ideal man understands that in order to be the leader, you first become a servant. And we gain by serving. Serving is what opens the door to manhood. Finally, the ideal man is an overcomer. The fourth and the last face of the Messiah is that of the eagle. It's the symbol of resurrection. 
The Gospel of John takes great pains to present Jesus in a totally different way than what we see him in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are the three Gospels that harmonize. They're called the Synoptic Gospels. But the the Gospel of John stands alone. It doesn't present Jesus as the man in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. It presents to us Jesus as God. And all through the Gospel of John, we see him in his divinity as a man. He is in man, but he's still divine. He is the Son of God. But what we see is the theme of that gospel is resurrection. But there is no resurrection, and this is what he keeps pointing to over and over again. There can't be a resurrection if there isn't first a death, if there isn't a cross. And he said in John twelve twenty four, I assure you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces a large crop. And this is the principle on which he's going to build his entire kingdom. It's the principle on which you and I build our lives and ministries. Again, I quote Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole. He said, every death in Christ is followed by a glorious resurrection. The first many years of my walk with Christ, you might be surprised to hear this, but I didn't hear a lot of teaching about the cross of Christ. In fact, the group that I ran with actually had a negative take on the cross. They said, we don't preach much about the cross. The leader of the group said, because the cross is a place of defeat. And I was robbed of a great truth because the cross is a place of victory, and it's always the necessary step, and we're all called to bear a cross. But what you need to know about crosses is this. They're always temporary. Jesus didn't stay on the cross the whole time. He was there for a few hours. But he had multiple crosses in his life. You will have multiple crosses in your life. He isn't calling us all to die a martyr's death. That isn't what he's talking about here. He's talking about learn the principle of death and resurrection, which means that all of us at different times will be called to give up some things or to permit some things in our lives to die or to be set aside for the greater good. The teacher gives up a better living to make a difference in the life of kids. They could have made more money somewhere else, but they chose to engage in a career that would enable them to get close to young people and to shape their lives, and they choose to do it even though it isn't the highest-paying job. The handsome bachelor gives up his freedom and the excitement of dating all kinds of beautiful women. That was never a problem for me. Obviously, it's an opportunity that some men have, but he gives that up in order to have a family. The capable young wife puts aside, well, this isn't popular today, but she puts aside a career for a season to guide her children to greatness. What I want you to see is that this is the principle of the cross. We've all been called to it. The world ridicules this kind of sacrifice because it doesn't understand the power of death and resurrection. But what I want you to see, the cross is not an end, it's always a beginning. Like the eagle that renews its strength and is the symbol of resurrection, when it's in old age, it's been weakened in its body, it suddenly has a turnaround. This is the picture of Jesus. That's why there was the face of the eagle here. 
And it's shown to us in the Gospel of John. So when I understand this, changes the way I think. I'm no longer afraid to let one-tenth of my money every time I get paid. I'm not afraid to let that tenth die in the soil of my church because I know there's going to be a resurrection. I'm going to get it all back and then some, as you heard Johnny testify to, because of the principle of the cross. Every death in Christ is followed by a glorious resurrection. I'm getting to reap a resurrection right now because of years and years of hobbies that I gave up, things I did not pursue to be with my teenage sons, especially my daughters too, but especially my sons because they needed more of my time. And I gave up thing after thing after thing that I could have been involved in, thing that I could have done, but I gave up things. I remember when they finally were able to stay up to midnight And now my TV time is gone. When they were little, it's to bed at 9. Buddy, I had the TV all by myself in the den, all by myself from 9 to however long I wanted to stay up. But when they turned 17, 18, 19, it got different. And the den was closer to their bedroom, a bedroom that I purposely built in the garage of our house to keep from killing them. And I'm so glad that I made those decisions. Just last week I looked up and saw Chris Munch do a marvelous job telling a story that, that, that I'm sure touched your heart. I'm going to go speak at an art conference here in a couple of weeks. And one of the other speakers I understand is a kid named Dave Summerall who spent time in that bedroom I was talking to you about out there staying overnight with my boys. I remember Josh Blunt who just pioneered a church in the south part of Oklahoma City. Another one of those kids that stayed in that room. In fact, every one of those kids, Ethan Vance, Whit, Gabe, Dave, my son-in-law, every one of those kids, every one of them, without exception, they're all in some kind of ministry today. And I gave up my wallet. I'd leave it in the laundry room right where they could get to it. I'd say, listen, guys, you can have the den, and you can call Mazio's, and you can order the pizza, And I'll pay for it. And our home was the crash pad. And we had those kids there all the time. But I always had influence in their lives. I died to some of my own wishes. Things I could have gone off to do that I didn't do. But I'm so glad I did. Because today they're giving me back the time that I gave up then. Listen to me. The ideal man is an overcomer. And this is how you overcome. You understand that it's necessary at times to die a temporary death, to plant something in order to get it back greater later on. That's the message of the cross. So when we wonder what an ideal man is, it's not a guy who's totally perfect, but he's working on four things. He's working on being a communicator. He's working on being a protector He understands that to get to the top, he becomes a servant. And he understands that from time to time, you go to the cross so you can have a resurrection. That's what it means to be a man. And that's what Jesus was, the ideal man, the perfect man. And that's why God took such great pains to reveal to us how he did what he did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the privilege that I have had, sir, to 
talk with these men and to be a part of their lives this day. And I pray in Jesus' name that you would strengthen them and equip them for the things that they face now in this life. Some are dealing with difficult challenges in their homes. Others are facing challenges in business. Some facing challenges with their children. Some facing challenges with both or all three. And God, you have answers for every single one of them. And Father, my prayer is that these men develop such a relationship with you that they can draw strength and comfort from you that would enable them to stand and be the pillars of strength they're supposed to be. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name.